Uh, we are in week four of our collection called Significant. Now, when you go through and you hear about the Bible, right, and you hear about what things that Jesus did and all these great events that happen, you hear them for the first time and it's kind of echoed and it seems normal to everybody, right? But because of that, sometimes some of the things that have happened in Scripture that are significant, they seem normal, right? And things that are, you just hear repeated over and over, normal isn't exciting anymore. And sometimes you devalue, you overlook, or you simply get distracted or discount something that you should be paying a little more attention to. So that's the hopes of this collection, is that we're walking through Jesus' journey and we're pulling out things. Now, he did a lot of stuff. We might not hit your favorite story. I don't know. Well, we're going to get through this together, um, but there's a lot of cool things that happen. And even though we've been going through actions, right? So action wasn't only the thing that he did, these events, right? Sometimes Jesus would come along and he would say something, right? Just he'll verbalize something that's so crazy to the people at that time, it became an event, right? He would start making statements and people would begin to gather. He didn't even perform a miracle yet. He just is talking, right? And it's catching people off guard. And so they're gathering. So today, that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at. One of these moments that he said something that was just outlandish, crazy for the time, um, hard for, it was a big pill for them to swallow. So it's significant in that, in that form. So Jesus came to introduce something brand new, brand new to the world, uh, and brand new for the world, something brand new. Um, against all odds, a band of Jewish blasphemers were following a crucified teacher that had no territory, no military, and no sacred text to build off of. It was a movement that logically would have been dead before it started, but it was fueled by something they didn't understand. They insisted that the final sacrifice for sin for everybody in the world from that time and beyond, animal sacrifice was no longer needed. This was the statement that was being made. Now, to us, you're going, whoop to do yeah, who cares, right? Yeah, we sacrifice animals now to eat them, you know, just for ourselves. We don't have to do this whole spiritual thing, right? But in this time, this was brand new because they were so used to this practice, not even just believers in God, but all religions in that time felt like some homage needed to be paid. And so they would make animal sacrifice. And so this was in the face of Roman, Greek, barbarian, and Jewish religion. And I'm sure as they're making the statements, walking through town saying, hey, a final sacrifice hasn't been made. You don't have to do it anymore. They probably thought, who do you think you are? Don't you know this is the way we've always done it? Does this sound familiar to anybody? If you've been around in church for a long time, you've probably heard these statements before. This is how we've always done it. This is, this is where I always sit right? This is where the sacrifices always happen. Why would we change it if it's working? You know, sometimes we think something's working, but it's really not. They think, who died and left them in charge? Well, in thir uh, 313 AD, um, with no territory, military, or authority, Emperor Constantine accepted Christianity as a religion, right? He accepted it. And this is what really changed the game. 
Now, people who are like diehard early church fans would say, man, that's when it ruined, right? That's when, that's when the band really gave up, right? And that's when, that's when they, they sold out to the big label, right? That's, that's what you, you would think because it did change things. No longer was it this band of misfits who was starting this movement that struck fear, you know, kind of like Robin Hood, struck fear into those in charge. Now it was accepted. They weren't chased out of town anymore. They weren't hunted anymore. About a decade or so later after that, Christianity was declared the sole authorized religion of the Roman Empire. Talk about a jolt, right? That would be as if the, Houston, the mayor of Houston came forth and said, you know what, all of Houston, which is really big, and more people claim Houston than actually live in Houston, and, and they would say, that, was, I don't know, that wasn't a dig, That's just, I'm just saying it's big, right, it's just, it's big. If you're not in the city limits and you're here, we love you and we're glad you're here, okay? <laughs> don't go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't even my notes. Um, it would be as if they said, you know what, Christianity is the only religion, officially, right? You would think that that would just be a jolt for Christianity, right? But sometimes comfort does not produce quality. And sometimes in comfort, in routine, we can get comfortable in who we are, and we begin to draw the lines and say what's acceptable and what's not because it's comfortable and we think that we know better. Now, that's kind of where it began, right? For John the Baptist, when in the moment when he was baptizing somebody and he pulled him up and he saw Jesus, and we've talked about this, and it says in John 1, 29, it says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Could you imagine? They've been waiting for this entity for, for a very long time. People have been talking about it, and then all of a sudden he looks up and he points, hey, he's right there. Look at him, right? He's kind of crazy. He's got long hair and nails, you know, eating bugs. He's right there. He never would have imagined from that moment there would be a day that the Roman Empire would declare it officially the religion of the Roman Empire. Never would have guessed that. He would have thought that's impossible. He would have bet against it and then ate some more bugs, you know, because he was weird. Um, it's unimaginable that the Roman temples would be torn down or repurposed. It was ultimately pagan worship was outlawed in the Roman Empire, which was huge, big movement. Jewish worship became impossible, but I'll get to that in a little bit. This, and this is where they were left off. And this is kind of what, what we, we glaze over in time, these powerful moments, just because it goes, oh, it's history and it doesn't really affect us anymore. So in Luke 4, we're going to pick up there, Luke 4, 14 through 15, We've been talking about how, like, word had been spread. Not, not only is he talking, now he's backing it up with miracles. He's doing these cool, you know, fishing tricks, you know, throw the net over here, and they pull in the... And he's doing all this really cool stuff to catch their attention, right? And so the buzz is getting around. And so we pick up in Luke 4, 14. It says, news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. They were praising him as a teacher and prophet. Not fully about who he was yet, right? Teacher and prophet. They viewed Jesus as an extension of something old. And this is what we like to do, 
right? We like to think that we know what's going on and we have the baseline of it, right? And everything in our life is an extension of something old, right? So we build off of that. That's not a terrible way to do things, right? That's kind of like a scientific method. Like, well, I know this is to be true and I can build off of this. Something was coming. Something was changing. Luke 7, 16, it says, A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. But he was so much more than that. That's how they could perceive. In their logic, in the boxes in their mind, this is how they could perceive someone like Jesus. Because honestly, although it's been prophesied, they had no idea how this Savior was going to come and what he was going to look like. They had hopes. They wanted to come in with a giant sword and slay all the kings that have hurt them and take rule of the land. That is kind of what they were expecting because that's what they knew. Then Jesus began uh, dropping hints and parables uh, like, like breadcrumbs throughout the land. People started following and eating them up. The Sermon on the Mount represents a sharp turn in his messaging sharp turn in the messaging of what being a believer was. He represented an upside-down kingdom, an other's first kingdom that today we still struggle with. You think it's a struggle now. We have all this understanding of Scripture and everything, right? And we're able to dissect it and go, oh, that's me. And then we have these tests and we can figure out which, which fruit of the Spirit am I? You know, all, all of these things. What's my, it's always confusing me when somebody says, hey, what's your gift of the Spirit? And I'm like, which one? Are you talking about the internet one or are you talking about the one from Scripture? I, I have no idea which one. I'm, I'm sure they're both valid and they both work in some way. People keep using them. Uh, but things were going to change. And then in Luke 6.20, as one of the ways to show that it's changing, he said things like, blessed, <laughs> blessed are you who are poor. This statement, to us, we've heard this, and we kind of understand it maybe a little bit until you truly live it. You don't really understand it, but you can understand the concept of it, right? We're a lot smarter uh, now than we were then, Um, but people at that time, they would have said, no, it's thought that the poor would not be in favor for God, right? That God is not blessing them, so that means that God's not happy with them. And they kind of believe the same thing about sickness. If you had some kind of sickness, that means God is not healing you, and you're obviously doing something wrong. There's some kind of sin associated with your life. They would think, blessed are the rich, like the patriarchs, Abraham, David, and Solomon, because that's what they knew. That's what they understood. And then continue on, it says, verse 20 says, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, hold on. Now, we hear that, and we don't think much of it. Now, to them, when they hear that, that the poor are blessed, and they will inherit the kingdom of God. It's yours. They would say the poor are not excluded. All that followed was upside down to them. The meek would inherit. The merciful would be blessed. Peacemakers over people who force it, right, from task force, from, from army, people that use force to make decisions happen. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And they would be like, well, what about ceremonial purity? Because they had all of these steps that they would do to get themselves into the presence of God. In this time, there was only temples. 
And for, to get in this temple, you had to be an approved, you know, one to be able to get through. They weren't doing that. It wasn't even a thing then. They didn't do that yet. There was no cross like that. I don't know why I'm doing that. But they get in there. It was so dangerous. They would, you know, and Hannah talked about this a couple of Sundays ago. They would put a rope to their leg that if they died because of the presence of God was too powerful and they stopped moving, they could drag them out because oh, I ain't going to go in there, right? They died. I ain't going in. If they didn't make it, surely I'm not because they were the best chosen. Things were about to change. Matthew 5, 13 through 14, he even goes into, you are the salt of the earth. We hear that and they're like, that sounds great. He goes on and says, you are the light of the world. The Jews in this time, the people that were the believers in the God, that, that they were waiting for a Messiah, would say, what do you mean them? This is just an us thing. This is for, for Jewish people. We are his called people. Jews were set apart from the world. In verse 16, it says, In the same way, let your light, your light shine before others. Look, others? You mean non-Jewish people? The uncircumcised? Somebody get me a knife. That's what they would be saying. <laughs> we find that later in Scripture. We don't even want others around. So why would we be saying earth and world and including all of these others? Continues on in verse 16, it says, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And they would be like, glorify him? How about fear him? How about be terrified of him? Because that's what we've been, scared. Because every time we walk away, he takes it away from us. Why are not they fearful like in the days of Joshua? Conquering kingdoms. They should be scared of our God. This doesn't sound like Moses or the prophets to us. This is not what we know. And they would go, this is something new. This is something different. This might be something even heretic, right? It would, it would trigger something. In verse 17, it goes on to say, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus' name for the Old Testament was the Old Covenant. That's what that was. When he referenced the Old Testament, we, we came up with that name. That wasn't a name that they said. He never said that, right? It was always the Old Covenant. It was an agreement made with God's people. So he would go about this, uh, and he would say, I'm not come to abolish it. And he said, I have not come to destroy, change, or edit it. That's what that means. And why say that? Why is it necessary to make that statement that he comes along, he starts proposing these new kind of things, and then he goes, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I'm not going to destroy it, though. Like, what's it? Something new. But no, 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 no. I'm not going to kill it. I'm not going to end it, right? I'm coming to fulfill it, right? And so he comes along in verse 17. If you continue on, it says, I have not come to abolish them. It's kind of like he repeats, like, you're not imagining things. Things are going to change, right? He says, I'm not going to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this would not have made sense to them because in this time, the why they, they had to keep doing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because not one sacrifice was enough. And so using words like fulfill is an absolute term, meaning that, hey, there's going to be something happening that you don't have to do that anymore. To them, that was the thing that they held on to. They went, man, I really messed up today. It's okay. I got a goat lined up. 
that's going to take on the brunt of this sin. I mean, does that make sense? Now somebody has come along who says he's here to help us. Some are calling him a prophet, you know, someone that's come to bring the good news. And now he's telling us that what we've held on to, our only sense of security and control over our destiny and us getting to heaven, he's going to take that away from us? They would not have been great fans of that. I mean, modern day era, if I, some churches, if I try to remove a, a, a plant that's not alive from a stage, you get a revolt on your hands, right? Can you imagine taking away your ticket to heaven? It'd be really confusing in that time, monumental. And what he was saying to them, he's saying, if it's an assignment, I'm completing it. If this is a plane, I'm landing it. If it's a math problem, I'm going to solve it. And later, he would eventually invite them to embark with him. Take this journey with me. Don't just think I'm here just to erase this. No, 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 we're going somewhere. And you have the choice to come along with me. When someone says, follow me, they're essentially going, hey, I have something better. I have something better for you. But you got to choose you got to choose to come along. So the old covenant had an expiration date. An expiration, I say that, I know it sounds bad, it sounds like something negative, like you're losing something, uh, but you're actually being traded for something better. This expiration was good for us. The Old Testament way, the approach, the value system was about to expire. Something built off of that and, and would validate each other, the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we call the Old Testament, New Testament, in that time, the covenants that were made, this new covenant that was going to be, not only would circumvent it, be better than it, but it would complete it. He's trying to say, I'm not here something other than what you know. I'm just helping you define what the future is going to be because it's going to change. Something is about to change. Um, and then we continue on. Um, he, 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 he reaches out, he, something built to validate the other, and this is going to be brand new. And so verse 18, it says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear. That was a huge statement then. But we know more about worlds, and we're actually looking for a second earth. I don't know if we'll ever find it. I hope we find other humans. Dude, and this is a total tangent. Do you think there's aliens out there? I don't know. I hope so. That sounds cool. But does God have to tell us about them? No, he doesn't, right? He could have created another human race. I don't know. That might be blaspheming. Who knows? But that's just my imagination aside from Scripture. <laughs> so if you need a caveat that, you know, whatever, don't, don't email me or anything. Um, <laughs> it says, truly, until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will be any means to disappear from the law. Wait a minute. He's come and bring something brand new, but he doesn't end any of that. And he goes, until. This is one of the most overlooked propositions in the New Testament. So much confusion legalism, gracelessness, faithlessness has resulted of this. A lot of hatred has come out, a lot of hurt, a lot of disappointment. And what he says next, again, to us, it might not mean that much because we're not truly understanding the context in which he is saying this. So he says, until everything is accomplished, until everything is in its place. 
The completion to us is something different. See, we live in a linear timeline. We can only move forward. We cannot go backwards. Although we don't forget the past, it's still there. We can replay it in our minds over and over again. It's usually the worst ones. I don't know why we do that to ourselves, but we do. And so we keep going. It's linear. We can't go back. So absolute statements like fulfill until it is accomplished, until it is finished, terrifies us because we only know end. And we are working towards that end, the end result, right? We can't rewind, start over, go above time. Only God can do that. And so when we get absolute statements, it either scares the mess out of us or we love it. Because absolute statement means final, finale. And so somehow in this process, if I can finalize my end before it's over, great. I can do whatever I want, right? Because it's already finished. When we feel complete, we think it's completion has happened, we think it's been all been solved. That means no more problems. So the disconnect for us is the friction is not gone. Like, well, if Jesus exists and he did all these great things, why do bad things still happen? The friction is not over because we are in a linear timeline. We still have to live out our days, no matter how difficult they are, until the end. And then in that end, we get to meet our maker, and we get to hear about our life. And man, I hope there's more grace than what I understand for what I have done in my life. But because of what he did, in this absolute statement, I can lean strong on that. Now, that was a big idea, and I hope that didn't <laughs> overwhelm a lot of you. Um, again, this will be online. You can re-listen to it again. But it says, until everything is in its place. And it will be. He does it. Before he leaves, he completes it. And then it all dis kind of disappears for 40 years. The movement, people are trying to kill it, squish it, make it go away. And then it pops up again. Seemingly 40 years later, at the hands of Titus and the Roman legion, it disappeared because they destroyed the temple. Now, if God was only a location to the Jewish people and you destroy that location, you seemingly have destroyed their lifeline to God. You can imagine they would be mad. You can imagine they would feel like something has been stolen from them, as if somebody evil has come to this earth to take something away from us. And now you're beginning to understand the anger that the Pharisees had towards Jesus. He was messing it all up. All that they had worked to build was being chipped away at slowly by every statement this prophet had been making. I, I would infuriate us if someone came along, a rogue traveler, and began to say things to us, right, and was turning water into wine. Here would be, I don't know, uh, lemonade to beer or something. I, I, whatever the craft breweries we have. You know, it would be something like that. But he comes and starts performing all these miracles, and then he dies, and then comes back to life, and it's kind of like, I think we need to listen to him. <laughs> I think he's on to something, right? There would, you better believe the American Christian church would be losing their mind. 
Who is this heretic that's taken away our power? Who is this person who is defaming us? They would claim that he's against God. All of this. But 40 years later, because the temple was torn down, ancient Judaism essentially went out of business. And Jesus was born under God's covenant with Israel to fulfill, end it, and replace it with something better. And you're like, how do, that math doesn't work with me, but that's God's math. He works above us and beyond us. He works in a realm that we cannot understand, nor will we ever. Even when we are in heaven, I still don't think we'll be able to fully fathom. We might get a glimpse of it and see it and be able to study it for the rest of eternity, but it's God. He's endless. Just when you think he's figured, you figured him out, he's made four other universes probably, <laughs> right? Can't do it. So with a new covenant between God and everybody, all the breadcrumbs of teachings and parables were foreshadowing that a total break with the old was coming. A break the church had a hard time and still has have a hard time embracing. And if there was ever any question, he goes on to repeat himself. Matthew 5, 21, starting there, it says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I tell you, he basically, he's like, I overshadowed a bunch of things, right? He would say, you've heard it said that you do not murder. But as Jesus, I say, don't even hate. Not just don't kill him, but don't hate him as well. And then he would say, you've heard it, uh, don't commit adultery. I would say the sheer lust is also a sin. Not just the act of it, but lusting over them is a sin. Game changer, Right? That changes the whole, how they do things. And then the men would go on and say that a divorce certificate clears you with God, that God ordains your divorce. And Jesus would say, I don't think so. Because it's more than that. It's something bigger than that. And they would go, wait, Moses said all of that. Who do you think you are? You can't replace Moses, the covenant maker, and the lawgiver. You can't do that. He is essentially devaluing in their eyes. He wasn't really in their eyes. He was devaluing and taking away something that their whole generations were built off of. And their ticket to heaven, throughout all the suffering that they've had to go through, now you're just going to hand them out to everybody freely? That's not fair. This is what they're feeling. He wraps up with this, Matthew 7, 42. He says, so in everything, do it to others what you have done to them. Oh, I'm sorry, totally messed it up. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Wait a minute. If I just treated people the way that I want to be treated, you mean that all of those laws, those difficult things that we have been just struggling to follow will be fulfilled? It's too good to be true. Right? They would look at each other and they would say these things. It's less complicated but more demanding. By far, Christianity is easy to, easier to understand but it's harder to practice. It's easier said than done. Simple but deep and how your actions carry it out. 
this did not make sense to their world. Matthew 7, 28, we continue on. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught, hold on, they weren't just amazed because of the things that he did, the miracles that he performed, right? It's the confidence in what he led with. Watch this, what happens next. He says, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is something bigger, something more beyond. When they came back at him with, what about Moses and what the law says? What about the temple? He stunned them with this response in Matthew 12, 6. It says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. He's like, guys, something greater than the temple is right here, standing right in front of you. Can you see it? Or are you still stuck? Do you still want to struggle or do you, or do you want something better, something brand new? And I'm saying all the right words. I'm telling you everything that you need to hear. And that's why you haven't killed me yet, because it confusingly makes sense. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He's saying all this history and it's all kind of pulling together. That's not how we thought it was going to happen. What's so great that makes the temple unnecessary? Is this important to us in this time? Absolutely. That Jesus came to fulfill and in the old, introducing something brand new. And history would prove him correct. The Old Testament was a divinely created and scriptured uh, a scripted cocoon from which the love of God was revealed to the world. And I'm sure you've heard this said before. I've heard it said all through going church, right? I probably even said it. <laughs> the Bible is your guide to life. You've heard that before? You're, the Bible is your guide to life. If you just follow the Bible, the Bible is your guide to life, right? It's your handbook. It's your manual. And people used all these scenarios. If, if you go into the glove box of your car and you pull it out, it's the manual, you know, of how you live. I'm, I'm sure you've heard that on TBN or somewhere. Um, but that's not what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus never even mentioned the Bible because it didn't exist yet. There wasn't an Old Testament, a New Testament yet. We made that. We, put, we bound those together to help us because we're dumb humans and we need help. But that's not what Jesus said. The Bible wasn't even a thing yet. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So follow me. That's what he said. In the end, he makes it unmistakably clear for especially those, and if you're here today, who have read some Old Testament things and now you're having a struggle, like, wait a minute, it said this and God said this, but we do this now. I, how, do I, how do I follow? How do I follow? How do I follow? Right? And you, and, you, and you get this inner turmoil, right? And you've backed away from Jesus because of something you saw in the Old Testament. If, you, if you're in that place, and this is what I close with because everybody starts paying attention when you say close. Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not Moses, not the law. And you better believe that statement rattled the Jews, rocked their worlds. But they had seen him die and stand before them. Moses never did that. 
He'd done something that was truly out of this world. And he goes on to say, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And in the old days, you secured your borders, right? Um, you locked them down. That's how you protected yourself from, and you expelled foreigners. Is this sounding familiar? Now you are to cross your borders and invite the foreigners to follow. They hated this statement. They did not like it. They did not like the fact that I got to open myself up for others, that it's not just about me and my people and what I understand anymore. Now I got to leave my borders and go talk to the dirty Gentiles. I got to open up my heart for them. You can imagine the rejection that they felt. They're like, I don't want to do that. But he said, go into all nations. Start spreading it. Continue on. It says baptizing them in the name of, and we know, we know what comes next, but for the Jewish audience, they weren't expecting this. He said, in the name of the Father and the Son and of, not Moses, not Solomon, not David, the Holy Spirit. You've heard it said before. The Bible is your guide to life. But Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything, not the Bible, not the Old Testament, not the Ten Commandments, I have commanded you, that Jesus has commanded. So in that, a new era had begun. Jesus replaced all that Moses and Solomon put in place. And this is good news for us because your hands are a lot cleaner now and you don't have to get so physical with animals. Christianity can stand on its own two nail-pierced feet. It is strong. You can try to poke holes in it. Go right ahead. It will hold up. Jesus will hold up. Not some old way. What he brought was brand new. And it was sealed through his death. He brought the concept. The concept could have worked. But because of what he did, he put a cap on and saying, it will always preserve. It will never go bad. Because my death, my ultimate death, my ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice that satisfies all sacrifices, has been made. And that is huge. That is probably one of the most significant things that Jesus ever did for us. And he has done for you. And if that is confusing... If I have said this and you go, that feels a little wrong or maybe a little heretic-ness, you know, to it, imagine how they felt in the first century when they were told the same thing and they didn't have the Bible to go with. They had the word, somebody they thought was a prophet, but turned out to be the king of kings. And that, to me, is significant. Don't miss next week. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. You came to not just to mess with us, just to shake our cages, but in the process of saving us, it shook our comfort cage. These things that we tie ourselves to, thinking it will earn our way into heaven, Lord, as if our, our, we can give enough to find our way in, or we could serve enough to find our way in, or we could somehow outwit you, Lord, and figure out there's something in Scripture that's wrong, a caveat. It doesn't exist because there's only one way 
to the Father, and that's through you. You told us this. You gave us the example. And you didn't say just follow some book or rules, but to follow you and what you have commanded us. Lord, right now, I pray in this moment that we are feeling the burden and pressure to not relegate Christianity to a religion, something that's been man-made, that we put our parameters and boxes around to better catch what we are doing in our lives, but to continually being pulling down the walls, stepping past the fences, going to the foreigners to serve you as we draw closer to you. Because, Lord, you don't live in a box. You are something that we do not understand. And Jesus came to the earth to give us a glimpse of your spirit and what you have called us to be. And I pray that we take that extra effort to step in that direction. So not only are our lives changed, but Lord, it's catalyzing. When we live in our design the way you've called us to live, it changes everything. It changes the atmosphere in the room. It changes character. It changes people. It erases addictions. It takes away sin. It does all of these multifaceted things all at the same time. I pray that we do not miss the significance of that as we walk daily with you. So, Lord, as we step into this week, help us to see and realize your covering and that it is absolute, and you did fulfill that law for us, and we get to live in the freedom of that. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen.